Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We awake today? Kinda. Kinda. We had a good time uh, at a Christmas party last night. We had our home for Christmas event. You can see on the back table over there, there are some gingerbread houses. Um, it's not a competition, but we won. No, I can't vote. So there's a... Here's, here's the kids and some grown, grown adult kids who uh, decorated. That was a lot of fun. I know a whole bunch of you turned out uh, for these times together. Thank you to the Echeverias, the Snyders, and the Messengers for opening your homes and uh, welcome, welcoming your church family. Uh, I know we had set the time from like 5 to 7 and just want to honor people's times, but I'm hearing that that 7 o'clock hour kind of came and went as it did at the place we were at and, uh, and a lot of fun. So we'll look forward to that again next year. You know, I love that our church family loves being together. Uh, it's one of the marks of a healthy church is that people actually enjoy being with each other. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Yeah. No, not so much. It's biblical and it's awesome. So, uh, so good. Hey, we're continuing our series this morning, Christmas Upside Down. Christmas Upside Down. Um, we've been talking about the fact that Christmas, the way we celebrate it, looks nothing like the first Christmas was, that first nativity, that first, uh, that, that first celebration of the birth of Jesus. Now, there was singing and there were angels, so we definitely have that. But beyond that, there's not a lot that looks the same. And that's important for us to recognize is, you know, there's things that we, we are familiar with in our faith, and Christmas is one of those things. We can kind of settle into this comfortability when it comes to Christmas and forget the fact that God is calling us to, to challenge the status quo, the norms in our lives, and, and to engage in his kingdom, which is an upside-down kingdom. And we're going to continue talking about that this morning. And so Christmas upside-down is, is all about a, a Savior who is born, who comes not as a grown man, as a king, but is born as a baby, in a way that's not typical, in a way that you would not expect conquering kings to arrive. See, that first Christmas was very different, but it was a game changer. And we still feel the effects of that, even as we sing, O Holy Night, and the, and the picture of the, the angels declaring and the things that, that, that happened in the heavenlies, the shift that happened here on earth, as, as we now had opportunity and have opportunity to align ourselves with the kingdom of God. It's powerful and it's exciting. You want to turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 1 are two of the verses that we're going to take a look at today. One of the things I've been talking about is that we discover some clues to this upside down uh, picture in Matthew chapter 5, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount uh, and includes the Beatitudes. See, Jesus was born as a baby in a stable and laid in a manger. And that's how he showed up on earth. But it's on the Sermon on the Mount, in this moment where he gets up and he begins preaching to the crowd, and he starts talking about his kingdom and his father's kingdom, and he starts challenging the norms of that day. He says things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He says, you know, there's things that you've adopted and ways of doing things that you've become familiar with, but I've got to tell you, in my kingdom, it's not that way. 
I'm gonna take it a step further. I'm gonna challenge what's just become familiar so that it will lead to life transformation in your own heart. And so we're gonna start in Matthew chapter five and we're gonna jump back to the nativity and then we're gonna come back to the Sermon on the Mount um, and then look at a couple of other passages this morning. So Matthew chapter five, verse six is our focus this morning. Jesus says these words to those who are listening and to us this morning. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We understand hunger and thirst because we deal with it every single day. Am I right? I have a bottle of water up here because I'm a little thirsty today because I've, I've realized here the last few weeks I'm drinking way too much coffee and not enough water. And, and your body needs this. Your body needs this. In fact, if you neglect drinking water, you'll end up in the hospital or worse. So your body needs water. Your body needs, it might need coffee as well, but needs water more. It needs food. Your body needs food. You can't go a day without, well, you could go a day without eating, but you're, excuse me, you're going to feel the effect of that. And so we need to fuel our bodies with food. God's made us that way. It's two of the most basic needs. You cannot survive without them. See, God is giving here, and Jesus is giving us a promise. He says, if you hunger and thirst, not for food and water, but if you hunger for righteousness, and later on he'll say, if you hunger for my kingdom, that you will be filled. And I love that he uses the word will, not might, could be, there's a possibility. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. When you hunger after the things of God's kingdom, you will be satisfied. That's a great word, isn't it? Satisfied. When you go out for a meal and you have a good meal and, it, and, and you know, sometimes you go out to eat and, and the food doesn't turn out the way you expected it. You ever had that and you're just kind of disappointed? We, we were traveling a few years back and one of the things we love to do is find the hole-in-the-wall places and communities that we visit. So, of course, it's uh, diners, dive-ins, drive-ins, and dives. Ever any fans, right? So we're like on the website. Every, every town we go to, we're like, okay, is there a triple D place here in this town? And, we would, and some of them, we would show up, and they were just as good as the TV show made them out to be. And then there were just some real duds. I'm real, you're like, wow, okay, this, you know, it's the magic of TV, and they definitely put their best foot forward, because this does not look like, because we would always watch the episode right before we went into the restaurant, right, so our expectations, but when you go in for a meal, and it meets all of those expectations, and the steaks just cook perfectly, right, and all the side dishes just complement really well, and, uh, you know, right, your coffee doesn't run out, it's always being filled, and the water is nice and cold, and you leave, and you're just like, oh, I'm satisfied. I feel good. We love that feeling. God says if you will hunger and thirst for his kingdom and for his righteousness, you will be satisfied. There will be this posture of your life where you just go, oh, that's just good. That's just, I'm full. God, I'm, I've had enough, and it's good, and I'm, I'm overflowing. This is 
good. Let's go back to the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. It's the encounter that Mary has with the angel Gabriel. He says this to her. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's a powerful statement right there. That this baby that you're going to give birth to, this baby that God is giving you, he's a game changer. Everything is going to change. In fact, they call him the consolation of Israel. He's the one they've been waiting for. This is the victory that has been talked about in Israel. It's the thing that they've been looking forward to. I was thinking this morning even like, what, the, what, what could we like even try and compare that to? And so the first thing that popped into my mind was all of those Cleveland fans waiting for their football team to go to the Super Bowl. I'm so sorry if you're a Browns fan, but we, right, if you're not into football, the Cleveland Browns have just never gone to the Super Bowl, let alone won a Super Bowl. And so there's kind of this one day it's going to happen. Now imagine if you're a Cleveland Browns fan and that season just happens to go amazing and your team goes to the Super Bowl and wins, you're like, yes, yes. It's been done. It's been accomplished. It's the thing we've been waiting for. All of the non-football fans in the room are like, I'm not with you. Just trust me. It's awesome, right? Israel has been waiting for this victory, for this person, this Messiah that would come. And here's Gabriel telling Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. You're going to be the one who will be established and set on the throne of David, and he will rule and reign forever. His kingdom will never end. That's awesome. That's awesome. We use that word in our culture a lot and kind of water it down, but there are truly things that are awesome, and this is absolutely one of them. But then we contrast it to Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3 where Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus who will be born and will come and minister. And he says, and we read this last week as well, says that he grew up before them, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Doesn't sound like we're talking about the same person, does it? Here's Gabriel saying, you're going to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah, and I will establish him. I will set him on this throne. He will rule forever. He is going to govern his people. That's awesome. And Isaiah's prophecy about the same king is that he will be despised, that he will be mocked, that he will be ridiculed, he'll be rejected, that he'll be familiar with pain. Did I mention Jesus is king over an upside-down kingdom? Doesn't always look the way we think it's supposed to look. He doesn't always move the way we think he's supposed to move. So who's right? Both are. 
that Jesus came to establish this kingdom, to sit on this throne, to rule forever, which he is doing right now. He just went about it a different way. He didn't go about it the way that we would have done it or expected for him to do it, and definitely not the way that Israel was waiting for. See, we live in a world that is hungry. We live in a world that is hungry, and we feel the pressure of that hunger even in our own lives. You see, we hunger for things like power and prosperity and pleasure and position and possessions, just to name a few. Power, prosperity, pleasure, position, and possessions. If we can go back one slide. See, power is this. I need to have control over. Fill in the blank. Other people, my circumstances, an organization. For some people, it becomes a nation. But I need power. And if I can just get more Power, and we become hungry for power, hungry for prosperity, money, money, money. I just need more money. If I had more money, then everything would be okay. If I had more money, then my problems would go away. And you know what they find is it's exactly the opposite. If you have more money, usually your problems increase, right? But the lie of the enemy is if you have more of this, you're going to be good. It'll be okay. Pleasure. Right, our culture says if it feels good, if it feels good and you're not hurting anyone, go for it. And there's an insatiable appetite that becomes attached to that as people sink more and more and more into sin. But it stirs up a hunger, a hunger for position, for fame. I mean, if you've been on YouTube lately, everyone and anyone has a YouTube channel telling you all manner of things. Now listen, YouTube has saved me a lot of money. I'm like, this just broke on my car, and there's like 15 videos on how to fix it. Some of them are accurate, and some of them not so much, right? But tell me there isn't somewhere in the midst of that this desire to just be known. One of the things that is being asked of young people today, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the number one answer is famous. Famous. I want to be known. I want to have position. I want people to know my name. For what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Now, here's the thing. When you say, well, young people. No, no, I think we all. We all deal with that. I want to be known. You know, it's amazing that even in in church circles, in ministry, pastors and leaders in the church whose goal stops being the expansion of the kingdom of God and serving God in any way, saying, I want to just be known. I want my name to be out there. And it starts making its way into our lives and possessions. We're going to keep up with whoever whatever the commercial is, whatever the neighbor just got, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need that, I need, and that word need, right? Especially at this time of year, Christmas. Well, I I really need that. I was thinking this week, and the week before that, actually, like I, I couldn't tell you what I got for Christmas last year. I definitely can't tell you what I got for Christmas the year before that. In fact, there's probably a handful of Christmases through my entire life where I could tell you 
some of the gifts that I got. Some of them just made a real impact, especially the meaningful ones. But for the most part, those, those things that I needed, I didn't really need. And they didn't, definitely didn't transform my life. Yet these are the hungers that our culture adopts, starts feeding more, more, more. And i got to tell you, if anyone has all of these things, a king does. Tell me a king's not supposed to have power, prosperity, have access to pleasure, be in a place of position, and have lots of possessions. We understand that even the royalty that exists today around the world, we recognize they live in a way that common folk don't live. It doesn't matter if you're the king or the queen or prince in a small country. You still have access to things that the common people don't. So kings should have access to this. Yet here's Jesus being born as a king, being established. But he's going the opposite direction. Not this king. At least not in the usual way. You see, for Jesus, his life, instead of being marked by power, is marked by meekness. Meekness being power under control. The best example of meekness, I think it's one of the the most misunderstood, misinterpreted words in the Bible because especially as guys, we're like, well, I'm definitely, I'm not meek. Don't call me meek, right? Kind of meek, whatever. (laughs) Meekness is this, it's power under control. So when my kids were little, I would wrestle with them. Love wrestling with my boys. Anymore, not so much because it's painful. But when they were little, and here's the thing, when I would wrestle with Micah and Blake and Gavin when they were little, and Grace as well, she, she's a grappler, she'd get, get in there, right? She's like three older brothers, she'd just kind of throw herself in, there'd be a pile and just like, <clears throat> and here's what I did as a dad, I was not trying to prove to them that I could beat them, right? Because right? that's messed up. <laughs> Bam! There you go, Right? three-year-old. I'm strutting around. No, that's like we recognize that's not good. Meekness is this. I'm wrestling with my boys and I feel like I'm rolling over and I use my power to protect them, not to hurt them. That's meekness. It is power being used appropriately to build, to protect, to cover, not to destroy. Jesus came with power under authority and under control to tear down strongholds, to rebuild, to save. Jesus was meek. Jesus, instead of prosperity, came with charity. Not about what I can get, but what, I, what can I give? What can I give? What can I give away to others? How can my heart be postured? Not for myself, I don't need it. How can I be a blessing to others? He came not to gain pleasure, not hungry for pleasure, but ready to sacrifice, to put himself in a place where it's the opposite of pleasure. The cross was not fun. But he came even as a baby, as he stepped from heaven into this world, aware that that was his destination. He came not seeking position, but came to serve and lived a life of service, even saying to his disciples, And to us, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's upside down. 
It challenges our culture. It challenges our norms. See, he didn't come to gain possessions. He lived a life of simplicity. It challenges us to think this, that Jesus was homeless. Jesus was homeless. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Now, he was welcomed and people made place for him. But his goal was not to, to build his own little kingdom here on earth. He was ready to lay it all down, to live with less. Now, he still needed food to eat, right? We know because Judas, we hear about his, in, in, that, in that rank, in that group, he was the manager of the money because they, when they traveled, they needed money to do what they did. And here's kind of a, a cool thing is in, in, in Luke, we read about the women who are part of this group, and, and the ladies will love this. The women supported them. They were the breadwinners. There were ladies that traveled with them and took care of the needs, and they provided financially for the 12 guys. Isn't that great? Yeah, someone's like, no, maybe. No, I think it's amazing that, again, God's challenging the norms. What's the source and who gets to serve in this kingdom? Everyone gets to serve, and everyone has an important part to play. See, he lived a life of simplicity. This doesn't look like the world we live in or the things that we long after. And so we have to take our cues from Jesus. That's why we're called Christians. That we are little Christs. We're supposed to look more like him. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. So if you want to look more like Jesus, it means that instead of pursuing power, we want to pursue meekness. And instead of pursuing prosperity, there's way too many peas coming out here. Prosperity, we need to look for charity. Instead of pleasure, sacrifice, position, no. It's all about how I can serve. How can I serve? And instead of possessions, Lord, how can I live more simply to further your kingdom? How can I get rid of stuff so then freed up to serve and be a blessing? We take our cues from Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 42, one through two, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you or pants for you, my God. He's thirsty. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And God says, here, this is where you can meet with me. And Jesus is born into the world as a baby. And he doesn't make his entrance into the grand stage, into the grand arena. He makes it quietly in a little town and is revealed to the shepherds and to the lowly first. God, I need you. I'm thirsty for you. And God knew that need. So here's the question this morning. What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you hunger and thirst for? See, your appetite will determine your diet. Your appetite will determine your diet. If you want to know what you hunger and thirst for, look at what you consume. Your time, your thoughts, your finances, your emotions, your relationships, and there's more. We'll just leave it at that. What consumes your time? 
The latest update on the iPhone came out with this little gadget. In fact, every Sunday morning I get a little notification that tells me how many hours I spent on my phone that, that week. And then it breaks it down by day. And then it breaks it down by app. I'm not very happy with that feature. Because <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm confronted with what I, what's consuming my time. Before, I was like, oh, I think I'm, yeah, I'm spending probably too much time. But now I know. Now I know. And now there's a responsibility that I have to make a change. Because every one of those minutes, and I'm not saying just get rid of the thing, but maybe for some of us, get rid of the thing. Flip phones sometimes don't seem so bad, do they? If I, if I just had a phone that I could make phone calls on, that'd be great. But now I know. What, what occupies your time? What o- occupies your thought life? What do you meditate on? Where does your money go? What do you spend your finances on? How about your emotions? What, what gets the best of your emotions? Because our emotions get fed, but they also give out. And they get drained And of course, our relationships. See, apart from God, our lives become filled with things that do not and cannot satisfy. We are left hungry and we're left thirsty. And I'm going to take a drink of water. Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in in chapter 6, verse 31 and 33, he says, So do not worry about uh, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Do you hear that? People who don't believe in God run after all of these things. It is the pursuit of their lives. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek His first. Seek first His kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of these things will be given to you as well. I love the promise that's present here for us. It's not that God says, listen, you need to sacrifice and give everything up for my kingdom and then just suffer. Though there is suffering and pain, if you weren't here last week, listen to that message. But what he's saying is if you put the priorities right, if you hunger and thirst for his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else will be added to you. God knows what your needs are. But, but God, you know what? If, I, if you give me more money, I will serve you more. And God says, I can't honor that. I can't bless that because it's backwards. God I'm going to trust you with my life, with my finances, with everything I am. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that you're in control. And he goes, okay, I can work in that. Now here's everything you need. We were sitting last night talking about the places that we've seen God provide. And that's a great conversation to have. There's just a few of us uh, left at the party. And and we were just starting to talk about what God provided for us. It almost became kind of like, well, here's how God provided for me. Well, here's how God provided. And it wasn't bragging. But there was story after story after story after story of God's miraculous provision in our lives. 
And I know this room is filled with those stories, but it's so amazing to me how quickly I can forget the goodness of God and start pursuing the things of this world. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. See, this baby, this savior, this king, turns everything upside down by giving hope in a place that hope wouldn't usually be found because he was about to make a way and open an avenue. So I want to make three points this morning. You can write these down. They're also available. Sermon notes are on the app as well, in the Tithely app. First is this. See, righteousness is, is right living before God. And there's, it's a very deep word. There's a lot that goes along with righteous. I think one of the dangers is we hear righteousness and immediately we can go, well, that's definitely not me because I know me. And I don't associate righteousness with me. But here's the good news. God does. Not because of you, but because of his son. And so the first is this. See, he gives us a hunger for right living because of God. We have a hunger for right living because of God, because this baby was born, because Jesus came, and because he modeled for us a different way of living. We now have a hunger for right living because of God, because Jesus is our righteousness. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 24, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. I'm going to stop there for a second. That's highlighted in my, in my, my notes here. The righteousness of God has been made known or has been revealed. His name is Jesus. When we see that baby laying in a manger, whether it's in the nativity scene or a living nativity, we see that baby, what God is saying, I have made my righteousness known. I have made him, I have revealed him to the world. To which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between, between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are, all are justified freely by His grace given through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, we have a hunger for right living because of God. Because of what Jesus did by stepping into this world, the way that he lived his life, the sacrifice he made in, in his ministry and when he went to the cross, dying that death and then raising again on the third day, he made a way for us to live righteously and not just to live righteously, to hunger after it, to daily be able to say, God, I want to do today what's right before you, to live in line with what you've already done for me. It's our appropriate response to Jesus. He's made the way. Now we have the opportunity to walk in it. See, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You might be thinking right now, well, this sounds more like an Easter message than a Christmas message. 
But the reality is there's no difference. It's the same Savior on the same mission. And when he came as a baby, it wasn't like the cross was this other thing. They were tied together. But he gives us his example and says, I'm not going to come the way that kings in your culture come because you're going to get things backwards. I'm going to come in a way of humility. Jesus steps into humanity with the ultimate goal of satisfying the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. He says of himself in John chapter 6, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I love that. Anyone. It is open to everybody. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread lives forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See, you have a hunger. God's giving you a hunger for righteousness that your life longs to be aligned with His, with His kingdom. And God made a way through Jesus Christ for that hunger to be satisfied, for that need to be met, for you to be filled. He became that sacrifice. He offers Himself says, I'm going to do this for you because you can't do this for yourself. See, this is where a hunger and thirst for righteousness begins. He's not talking about religion. He's talking about himself. That we would have a relationship with him and know him. The second thing is this. He gives us a hunger for right living before God. So once I've stepped into this relationship with Jesus... And I've, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The next step for me now is to start living in accordance with what he's done for me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says this in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we understand that our good deeds are not what what save us, but once we're saved and once we've aligned ourselves and once that hunger for righteousness has been satisfied in Jesus, now there's this part of my life that needs to line up with it and our deeds definitely need to be seen. The evidence of a saved life is a transformed life. The evidence of a saved life is a transformed life. Well, God, I, I, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus. Well, what did that lead to in your life? Well, I just kept living my life the way I was living my life. What, what value does salvation have for you if your life is not aligned? Now, the problem is in so many places that religion can reverse those and say you have to work in order to work, earn your salvation, and if you make any mistakes, it means you're not saved. No. Because the grace of God is way bigger than that. But if there's a hunger in my soul for the righteousness of God, for his kingdom, then my behavior daily needs to be checked to make sure that it's aligning with his kingdom and not the ways of this world. 
Jesus says, let your good deeds be seen and that they would glorify yourself. No, they would glorify your Father in heaven. Paul says to us in Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about these things. Think about the things that look like your father's kingdom and not like the world around you. Can we just agree that's not easy to do? Because we are bombarded daily with the images and the picture and the sounds of the kingdom of this world, the prince of the air, who wants us to live not according to God's kingdom, but to what we see around us. And so what we think about or what bombards our minds daily, if we give it enough time and enough attention, is going to come out in what we do. And so Paul says, if you know that you're aligned with Christ, you have this relationship, you're a part of this upside-down kingdom, it's going to be evident, it's going to be seen in your own life, in your thinking. God, is that thought honoring to you? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? I know in my life daily, I fight the battle of wanting to say things I shouldn't. It's probably just me. You probably all got this like totally nailed. But in my life, people say things or have an attitude or text me stuff. Oh, text messaging. And gosh, I want to just... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, gosh, I look at this and go, oh, Lord, i got so much work to do. i got so much work to do. God, I want to seek your righteousness. I want to seek your kingdom. I want to put these things first so that it will affect every other part of my life. And then finally, a hunger for right living empowered by God. A hunger for right living empowered by God. You know, if God had just said to us, if Jesus had come and said, listen, here's the deal. You need to try and live your life after my modeling. I've shown you how to live. Now just do what I've done. Uh, really? There's no way. And he does have that expectation, but then he gives us a gift and he goes, listen, you can't do this on your own. I know you can't do this on your own. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to fill your life. And he's going to remind you of the things that I've said. Because Jesus is there saying that we're forgetful. Amen. But he'll remind you and he'll convict you. And he will empower you to walk this road that you've set set out on. And I will empower you to be hungry and live hungry for the kingdom of God. See, the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life is a gift from Jesus. And it stirs that appetite inside of us. John 7, 37 to 39. 
On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so God has this order. Certain things have to happen first. He's born and he grows, starts his ministry, is baptized in the Jordan River. Spirit of God comes on him. He hears the voice of the Father. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's filled with the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, his, his ministry begins as he starts flowing in the power and under the authority of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says to us, you, you get to be a part of this. See, hunger and thirst, you will be filled A hunger for the bread of life, Jesus Christ. A hunger and a thirst, a thirst for the living water, the Holy Spirit that fills us. See, Jesus is born into this world and he sets in motion a process by which he arrives at this conclusion and says, here's what I've made available to you. He doesn't tell us hunger and thirst after these things and then doesn't give us the means by which we can be satisfied He tells us what we need and then he provides it for us. This is the way that God loves us. It's amazing in the story and the nativity. There's an exception to this when the writer here, when John says that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, except for Elizabeth is pregnant with John. And Mary goes to visit her cousin. And Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And here's what happens. Mary walks into the room and greets her cousin. And upon hearing Mary's word, John, in Elizabeth's womb, starts doing backflips. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Here are two women who have availed themselves to God and said, God, do whatever you need to do in my life. I'm ready. I'm submitting myself. I'm aligning myself with your kingdom. I want to serve the way that you're called me to serve. Mary says to angel Gabriel, be done to me according to what you have said. And in this holy moment where these two, these two cousins greet each other, the power of God is released in that moment, the babies are dancing, the Holy Spirit is falling, and it's this little picture of what's about to come. Fast forward to Jesus and John in the Jordan River, John baptizing his cousin and the Holy Spirit descending. And then Jesus saying to us, all of this that you see is available to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, God has given us everything we need to live rightly for him. And it starts in a manger. It starts with a king, not coming the way that the world would expect. He comes in a way Like I've said before, that's accessible to us. It's cute, absolutely, but there's so much more. 
God says, don't let the things of this world consume your desires and your appetites. Start hungering after the things of my kingdom. Can we stand together as we close? It's interesting to me that at Christmas, the word appetite and hunger, something that we use quite often, we were preparing a meal or we... There's things that we want. We have our wish lists. And it's a time of year. In fact, a, a friend of mine with the worship team, you guys can come, come on up. A friend of mine had said to me this week, he says, you know, Barry, at, at Christmas, everything is magnified. And so joy becomes mag- magnified in the same way for those who are walking through sorrow and pain. Christmas becomes a kind of a magnifier of that, that pain and that loss. We take things that we usually wouldn't do through the the rest of the year, but it's okay to do during Christmas. We spend a lot of money on things that, let's be honest, a lot of things we really don't need. We wouldn't do that all year, but at Christmas, it's okay. Now listen, we were like, oh, you're such a bummer. (laughs) But I wonder if we stop just for a minute to say, God, are you being honored in the midst of this? Jesus, would you check my heart? Am I hungering after the right things? That as we sing Christmas carols, as we gather with our families, as we unwrap presents, as we share a meal, that constantly at the forefront of our hearts and minds would be, God, would you give me a hunger for you, for your kingdom this Christmas? Help me to see you. Help me to know you. Help me to walk with you, to align my life with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we look at and remember the baby Jesus, this king coming in a way that was unexpected, that your declaration over him is that he would be established on a throne for eternity that of his kingdom there would be no end and that God we have been invited to participate and be part of that kingdom as Paul wrote that doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile that we have access and so Lord I pray in the midst of the Christmas season in the midst of the busyness of this next week that we would not lose sight of the things that are most important in our lives That, God, you would give us a hunger and thirst daily for you, for the things of your kingdom, for truth, for reconciliation, for healing. Lord, for looking opportunities not to be served, but to serve. God, I pray in the midst of this Christmas season, Lord, that we can be countercultural and the way we love those around us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.